So this is Martin Luther. He was born in 1483. He figured prominently in the so-called Protestant Reformation. Lutheranism, a major denomination in Western Christianity, is of course named after him. And many of us have heard parts of his story. Interestingly enough, many of the things we have heard about Luther are probably more myth and legend than they are actually facts. Yes, he did write a masterful work called The Disputation of Martin Luther on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. Most of us know it or have heard it called the 95 Theses, which in effect challenges the Roman Catholic Church at the time of which he was a priest when he wrote this. Challenging them for their dogmatic insistence that man can somehow earn salvation. But what is not true is that Luther did not hate the Roman Catholic Church. He did not want to start a new church, and he did not disagree with everything that the Roman Catholic Church taught. Really what had him fired up, and why he was writing this, is that at the time, the Pope was raising money to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And he was doing that by selling indulgences. Now, indulgences, what would happen is if you were caught in a sin or you confessed a sin, you had to do penance. You had to go through some form of penance or punishment. So the church was like, but you can pay us instead, and then we'll absolve that. You won't have to do your penances. So two things came to a head for Luther. A, he wanted to clarify that one does not earn salvation. It is a gift. It is a gift of God. It is grace. And B, to him, the indulgence thing was hypocritical. In Theses 86, he wrote, Why does the Pope, whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of the richest Roman politician, build the Basilica of St. Peter with the money of poor believers rather than with his own money? But outside of this biting and somewhat sarcastic comment, the rest of his disputation was more an academic exercise for him. He did not want to condemn the church he loved so much. Instead, he wanted to challenge the church's teaching. And he wanted to explore what would later become known as his theology of the cross. The fallout of this whole thing and the development of a whole new church was not his intention. He was excommunicated. He was because he wouldn't retract some of the things he said. That's why there was a new church started. He couldn't go to his church, so he had to do something else. But here are Luther's own thoughts on people creating division in Christianity. Each person ought to refrain from mentioning my name and not calling oneself a Lutheran, but rather a Christian. What is Luther? Is it not true that the teaching is not mine? In the same vein, I have been crucified for no one. St. Paul would not allow it that Christians would be called Pauline or Petrine, but just Christians. How did it happen to me that I, a poor stinking sack of maggots, should have someone called the children of Christ after my unworthy name? Not so, beloved friends. Let us eliminate the names that identify various parties and just call ourselves Christians because of Christ who's teaching me. Luther knew division was not God's way. 
He knew the way people were starting to just not gather in new communities of faith, but were actually judging and fighting with other communities of faith, was not God's way. And as St. Paul composes the very heart of his final homily, Paul follows Cephas is about Christ. We've been on this now for a few weeks. This is his final homily in the first essay that makes up 1 Corinthians, which we've been on for a few months. He speaks very clearly to this destructive issue that was plaguing the Corinthian believers and has been plaguing Christianity ever since. Verse 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians 4 is the center of this homily. And for those of you who have been here since the beginning of the series, remember what we learned. It is often in the center of Paul's homilies that he's making his main point. So, for example, this last homily, Bailey breaks it down for us so we can see how it looks. This last homily, Paul, Paul, Cephas, Paul specifically composes these writings so amazingly. And here's how this one is composed. It's a seven-section composition where the first and seventh sections parallel each other perfectly, no boasting. The second and sixth are about scripture, no boasting about your leaders. The third and fifth, Paul and Apollos are all yours. Then in the center, the center section is actually broken into three separate cameos. It's, it, Paul is the most amazing writer. He was brilliant. We've been through this a lot. And this is something, you can find this a lot in Isaiah. You can find it in Jeremiah even. And in the middle, he's talking about CSS, servants, stewards of the Lord under judgment, because it's the Lord that judges me and it's the Lord who judges and commends all. So knowing that Paul uses this form of composition we need as we approach verses 1 through 5 to remember to be very careful as we explore it because this is the thrust of the argument of this section of what he has written. The believers in Corinth were divided. And much of it had to do with their judging of others. Not the least of these others being Paul himself. Some people hated him. Some people loved him. Some people thought he was so great, he became their champion, and they rejected anyone who did not follow Paul. For others, they thought Paul was less, much less than what a Christian leader really should be, so they latched on to Apollos. And they followed Apollos, rejecting everyone else. Then there are some who simply judged and rejected other believers based on their own ideas of what a good Christian really was. Sound familiar? And still others were so practiced in empty rhetoric and style that they judged anyone who was not equal with them as somehow less than Christian, if Christian at all. And Paul says, well, my dear friends in Corinth, that's really not the way Christianity works. First of all, we... We, meaning Paul and Paulus and Peter and some of the other guys that, were, that they were using to create partisanship, we are stewards of God. Stewards. This is a very interesting metaphor that Paul is now using. Remember we've come off, how many metaphors that was he just using? We did the parable of the buildings and the builders. We did the parable of the farm and the field. And he talked about servants. And now all of a sudden... Paul brings a brand new metaphor in. We are stewards of God. Witherington can help us understand why this is important. 
Steward was used of an estate manager, usually a slave who ran the house for the master. According to Paul's use of the metaphor then, even leaders are servants and have their orders. Stewards must take care how they handle their owner's property. This is important. Paul then was not free to proclaim the gospel in whatever form or fashion he pleased, or that might please the Corinthians. See, that was the deal. He wasn't making the Corinthians happy. Therefore, they were judging him. What is significant to grasp here is that Paul is asking them how they can even begin to assume the role of judging someone else's steward. I mean, that, that, that's like if you own a business and another business owner decides to judge one of your employees that you think very highly of. And you pay very well because you think, and this other business owner thinks, well, that other business owner has no business judging your employee. It's your employee. It's your business to judge him. See, Paul is certainly there to serve the Corinthians by preaching the gospel. But he is not their steward. He is God's steward. So remember, what has he been preaching? Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this is what to the Corinthian believers? Foolishness. Right? Paul keeps reminding them, you call this foolishness. Okay. So he basically says, I don't care if you think it's foolish. And I don't care if you think my imitation of Jesus Christ is foolish. And I don't even care if you hate me for telling you, as professed followers of Christ, you should be imitating Jesus too. I don't care. Because all I care about is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all he cares about. And he's going to say this later in the same letter. When he gets to, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. So I really, he doesn't care what the Corinthian believers think. And he says it right here as well when he gets to verse 2. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Trustworthy to who? His master, not to the Corinthian believers. Paul is saying, I have one interest. To be loyal to God in taking care of his mysteries. His mysteries. And what are those mysteries? Witherington again. The mysteries of God are the apocalyptic secret that Paul has spoken of. That salvation is to be had by faith in Christ. In other words, the gospel. The gospel. So then Paul explains that based on the fact that he is a steward of God's alone, all other judgment of him is irrelevant. There's any other person's or even his own self-judgment. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. And what is interesting to note here is that by any human court, literally translated is by any human day. Fee is brilliant here. The word day, which is similar to our expression having one's day in court, is to be understood in light of the day already mentioned in 3.13. That's where our building materials will be tested by fire but now also anticipating the day of final judgment in verse 5. Paul is once again being thoroughly eschatological. The only judgment that counts is the final one administered by Christ himself. That's it. Nobody else's judgment matters. 
even though we take so passionately to judging. So, then we have one of Paul's classic rambles, verse 4. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So, Paul just rightfully insisted that he does not even examine himself. So he just said that. Remember the verse before, I don't even examine myself. And he's right to do that because he knows God will judge him. But I think what happens is as he is editing this homily and rereading it, he realizes that telling the Corinthians he doesn't even examine himself is probably going to cause a lot of problems, so he needs to qualify what he said. You see, back in Acts 16, we find out that Paul was imprisoned and beaten for supposedly having hidden motives. I think that happened when he was in Philippi. And if you read First and Second Corinthians closely, there are plenty of people in Corinth that seem to be thinking the same thing about Paul, that he has hidden motives, hidden agendas, that he might even have hidden sin in his life. And so Paul says, all right, so I don't want them to think that I'm not, that I'm not examining myself, so let me, let me qualify what I just meant by that. Okay? His lack of self-examination is not because he is ignoring issues in his own life. None of us should ignore issues in our own lives. If we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, we should probably be examining ourselves to see if we actually are following Jesus Christ. Following Jesus Christ does not mean creatively knowing the right thing. Okay, That's un an unfortunate, total misrepresentation of following Christ by years of Western Christianity. Following Christ means, what does Christ do? What does Christ say? And actually trying to live the exact same way and let him live in it. Okay? So we should all be examining ourselves for that. But what Paul's getting at is even if we find nothing wrong with us, and everything in our lives are perfect, like a lot of these Corinthians thought their lives were perfect, it's all irrelevant. Because we're not stewards of ourselves. We're stewards of God. And it's His judgment which is coming that matters. And that's the only judgment that matters. Not even our own. Okay? Then Paul, after qualifying, says forcefully what he only suggested back in 3.13. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will do it for us. In other words, why are we judging each other when the only judgment that matters, by the only judge there really is, is coming? Is <coughs> See, many of the Corinthian believers thought they had arrived. Their eschatology, their end times understanding, if you will, was only as big as themselves in their little, good Christian lives. And I thought, oh, I've arrived. I'm in. And some of these people were good Christians. I know some of the Corinthians were a mess, and we're going to start getting into some of these messy lives in, in chapter 5. But a lot of them had serious giftings of the Holy Spirit. A lot of them had serious knowledge of this new Christian faith. But 
because they had slipped back into that place, we all tend to go away from grace and into transactionalism, transacting with God, thinking we are making him bless us because we're so great. They became arrogant and forgot it was all about God and what he does and not what they do. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? That arrogance was dividing the church in Corinth. B. Brilliant. What do you have that you did not receive? When Paul writes this, this is an invitation to experience one of those rare, unguarded moments of total honesty, where in the presence of the eternal God, one recognizes that everything, absolutely everything that one has is a gift. All is of grace. Nothing is deserved, nothing earned. Their boasting is sure evidence that they have missed the gospel of grace. Instead of recognizing everything as a gift and being filled with gratitude, they possessed their gifts, saw them as their own, and looked down on those who seemed to lack so much. Those who experience grace live from a posture of unbounded gratitude. But those who think of themselves especially gifted with the Spirit and wisdom, and remember when Paul... Paul talks about wisdom a lot in Corinth as being negative. He's not talking about being intellectual. He's not talking about academia. He's talking about those people who think that all of the doctrines of the faith that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ crucified are more important than Jesus Christ crucified. So feel free to read it that way. Thereby enabling them to judge another, because they know better, reflect a total misunderstanding of grace and quite miss the humility of God expressed in the crucifixion. Wow. See, when we miss the theology of the cross, and when we buy into glory theology instead, we become like the Corinthians. And here in America... We are. Remember I said three months ago when we started this, it's not going to be easy to go through Corinthians because it might as well be called Paul's first letter to the Americans. The Corinthians all claimed to believe in Jesus Christ, all the Corinthian believers anyway. But they were a divided community and they judged each other as less than Christian. It's the same with us. See, it's not so much about different churches. I really don't think God cares about different churches. The Corinthians had different churches. It was just one church in Corinth. There were many different places they met to worship God and break bread together. And God knows we all as Christians can't meet in the same building. How do you put a billion Christians in one building? You can't do that. And God knows we all have different tastes. How we work out our public and corporate worship, I think, is very incidental to God. 
I don't really think he cares all that much. As long as it's bringing us to a place of worship, praise, and thanksgiving, he doesn't care. But the way we judge others, the way we point fingers at other churches, and the way we accuse other churches of not being real Christians or real churches, that is the sin God hates. And that is the sin that is going to be revealed and judged on the day of the Lord. I've got to give you another extended quote by feet because it's just pure brilliance. The Corinthian error is an easy one to repeat. Not only do we all have normal tendencies to turn natural preferences into exclusive ones, but in our fallenness we also consider ourselves wise enough to inform God through whom he may minister to his people. Gosh, I love that. I've been informing God most of my life. Our slogans take the form of I am of the Presbyterians or I am of the Pentecostals or of the Roman Catholics. And you can fill that in with anything you want. Or they might take ideological forms. I am of the liberals or of the evangelicals or of the fundamentalists. And then these are also used as weapons. Oh, he's a fundamentalist, you know. Which means that we no longer need to listen to him. (laughs) Since his ideology has determined his overall value as a spokesman for God. Sound familiar? Like, right now it's easy because you're thinking of everybody else that does this. But in a second, you'll be thinking of yourself. It is hardly possible in a day like ours that one will not have denominational, theological, or ideological preferences. It's normal. The difficulty lies in allowing that it might really be true that all things are ours. Remember Paul said that? Including those whom we think God would do better to be without. So I'm sorry for those of you who think God would do better without my voice. I'll have some grace still. But God is full of surprises. And he may choose to minister to us from the strangest of sources. Bald Mendel. (laughs) (laughs) And he may choose, if we were but more truly in Christ, and therefore free in him to learn and love. What a different idea of Christianity. This is one of the most beautiful quotes I've ever read on division and unity amongst Christians. See, people will read Corinthians and just start harping on their own little community of not being divided. Corinthians wasn't written to a little church in one building. It was written to the family of God, which is well over a billion people in this world that consider themselves Christians. And finally, and I'm sorry I went a little long today, finally notice Paul's beautiful modeling of Jesus Christ. He is talking about the day of the Lord. He is talking about judgment coming. And yet, he does not harp on the negative of that. 
He harps on the positive. And each man's praise will come to him from God. Oh. And he's talking to some pretty messy people. You know, when you think about dying and coming face to face with God, <coughs> does your theology have you so afraid of that judgment? Or does your theology really understand God died. So you could come home. If you remain afraid, <coughs> I think you need to rethink your faith. God died for you. That's how much He loves you. He will come. And praise will come with them. If that doesn't, <coughs> Paul was a beautiful person who really understood the love. If you have not known that about Paul, please keep reading it. And there's something else you should all remember about Paul. And he wrote his amazing, amazing epistles. He didn't have the Gospels to go on. They hadn't been written yet. He didn't have John, who was the last to write and really explain to us who Jesus Christ was. Paul got it. Paul really got it. Because even though he hadn't read the Gospels, he must have known when he met Jesus on the road. What road was he on? Damascus. Damascus. Jesus must have said, Paul, remember, I was not sent into the world to judge it. I was sent into the world to save it. If we claim to follow Jesus Christ, and he is not judging the world, why are we? Why are we? Why are our Facebook friends so filled with hate and division and judgment of other Christians? I think instead we should celebrate God's love for us. Celebrate the fact that when we die and meet Him face to face, the words that come out of his mouth. Or we'll probably fall on our face. But it won't be out of fear. It'll be out of complete exasperation and humility that the creator of this world died for us. Let's celebrate that love. And let's go out into this world and live that love. Because this world needs it more now than it ever has.